Hello, hello. All right, good morning. This is really loud. Hello, everyone. Come on in. Come inside. Take your seat. We are going to continue our Sunday morning. All right, there you go. One by one, you will sit. All right, my name is Amy. If we haven't met, I am part of the staff here at Sierra Bible Church. I'm here to welcome you. If you are new this morning or visiting, we have information about our church in the pocket in front of you. We also have a gift for you, and so if you again are visiting we want to give you that gift so on your way out today make sure you visit our info booth all right someone just took a chair out of the building no good that chair was no good i understand all right all right so not important okay next i am going to let you know about a couple things going on these next couple weeks. I know you might have questions about what's happening on the deck with one child. That is something we are going to address after today's message, and so you'll get information about that and how you can, can get involved with one child. Um, but for now, I want to make sure you know about our amazing annual church cleanup day. That's right. That, yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, usually this is actually usually in April. It's a spring cleaning day, but we had so much snow that we had to wait for it to melt. And so on June 3rd, we are having our annual cleanup day. Um, if you are wanting to be a part of this, which I know at least 15 of you will want to do this, that is how many people we would like to participate. You don't need 50, but 15. Uh, we would love you to sign up. Um, let, make sure you know um, to be here at 8 a.m. We are having lunch at 1 p.m., and we will have plenty of things for you to do in that time period. All right, something else coming up on June, what is it? Eighth, Thursday, June 8th, our worship and prayer night. So you may not know this, but we actually have a worship and prayer night every Thursday night um, at 6 p.m. That's right, people go to that and it's next door. Um, it's a smaller gathering, but what we're doing on June 8th is we're going to encourage a larger gathering. And so we're gonna do that in here. So we're going to have worship and prayer in this building on Thursday evening on June 8th. So we want to invite you to that. Make sure you write that on your calendars. If you write on calendars, I don't know, or put it in your phone. Uh, one last thing is that for those of you familiar with the Wong family, um, they are family in Basque country, and they are missionaries we support as a church. They are going to be coming out here this summer. Uh, they're actually doing a mission trip, so to speak, not for themselves, but they're bringing out three um, adolescent females that are from Basque Country, and they're coming out here for a three-week trip. We are looking for one more host family for one of these um, adolescent girls. And we already have two, so we're looking for one more. It's a two-week period in July, and Pastor Caleb has all the information, so if you need that information... Um, or, or, you know, just want to know more about it, if you think you might, be wanna, might want to be a host family, then go ahead and contact Caleb. Um, I think the only thing left is if you are in junior high, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, and you have not exited the building, you can now. Thank you, Ezra, for staying. <laughs> All right, here's Pastor Jesse. Okay. You guys ready? Oh, for second service, that was weak. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Oh. Okay. Right. You're lying because I heard the first response. <laughs> um, hey, as Amy mentioned, my name is Jesse. I'm part of the pastoral team here. If you are new, uh, as Amy mentioned, there's all kinds of things going on here. Uh, we do have an app. would encourage you to download that. Uh, in front of your seat, there uh, is a... Uh, a little sheet about us, a little cardstock deal tells you about who we are, uh, a little QR code on there. You can take a picture of that. It'll take you to all of our events and uh, all of the things, Sierra Bible Church oriented, social media outlets, all of that. There is a lot going on here. In fact, uh, as Amy mentioned, I'm going to do a little thing with one child here at the end. And it, it, because of that, all week long as I've been preparing my message, uh, I had this kind of looming over my head that we wanted to spend some time uh, with one child, and 
And I prepared my message, and sure enough, my message is far too long this morning than uh, I, uh, it's supposed to be. So um, we're going to be here till about 1, 2 o'clock. <laughs> Hang with me. Hey, yeah, there's a few of you excited about that. I'm lying. We will not be here till 1 or 2 because then the children's church workers will kill me. So, But um, I, I'm telling you that up front because... I, on your notes, there's three points that I wanted to cover. I'm only going to cover the first one. Uh, I am gone next week. I'm actually leaving uh, to go to Washington for some church business. Uh, and so Brad Noel will be preaching next week, and he's going to do chapter two, the first 10 verses in there. Uh, and then I'm going to come back to chapter one in a couple weeks uh, and revisit this message. There's enough material in here that I, I just don't want to uh, leave it behind. I want to make sure we touch upon it. So just keep that uh, in your mind for those of you who care. If you don't follow notes, if you don't look at my handouts at all, this will just feel like a normal Sunday to you and you can ignore everything I just said. If you don't have a Bible this morning, raise your hand and one of our ushers will gladly hand you one of our Bibles. You can keep it if you need it. Uh, you can take it home, whatever you need to do. You can leave it here for someone else later. That's fine. And turn to Ephesians chapter one and go to verse 15. Ephesians one, verse 15. And as is our, uh, as is our custom, uh, I would ask you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. That's why we do that on Sundays. And if you're not familiar, it's not because we're religious and we do it because we get something out of it necessarily. It's just a way for us to stand in faith and to say, Lord, speak to me through your word. So let's do that. Chapter one of Ephesians, verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those towards us? Who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, this is your word, and we trust that you'll use it to change us more into your likeness, to bring the peace that surpasses all understanding, to help us see the gospel more clearly, to lead those who aren't here this morning that don't know you, that you would lead them to salvation. For those who do know you, that you would comfort their faith, strengthen it, and draw them near. We trust you for this. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. You can be seated. So context matters, right? Ephesians, this particular letter was written to what is believed to be a, a group of churches. It's a circulating letter. The letter was intended to go to all of these different churches in Ephesus, which is basically modern-day Turkey. This place in, in Asia, that, that, that this letter would be circulated amongst all of these believers, and they were to read it, and they were to be... Uh, encouraged by what was in this particular letter. And if you remember what is happening in Ephesus, in this city that is really, Ephesus could be said that, it, that, it, it, that the center of, of all of the false worship, all of the false ideologies and all of the false idols, you could say were basically originated in Ephesus. And because of this, Christians were persecuted because of their faith. They were marginalized. They were brought into the Roman Colosseum. They were murdered to be a spectacle, to be entertainment. This is what's occurring in this particular book. And again, remember, Paul has strategically gone to this place on many missions trips, and, and he has planted this church. He left Priscilla and Aquila there, and then later Timothy would pastor that church, and Paul would continue to plant other churches and strengthen other churches, and he ends up finding himself in prison because he's been preaching the gospel. And as he's in prison, he has heard of the Ephesian church. He's heard what they're going through, what they're wrestling through, what is happening. Paul knows the current condition and the current climate to be a Christian in Rome. And that's not too far different from what we experience today. 
the modern day church is really experiencing in some ways some of the similar things that were happening in the ancient church when Paul planted this church. Now, granted, we're not being brought into stadiums and killed and fed to lions, but I think we're heading that way to some degree or another, right? Society is telling you as Christians that what you believe in and what you practice is no longer important. In fact, it's archaic and and what you believe in as a Christian in our culture is seen as oppressive. You know that you in our culture, that you are seen as a problem? You're oppressing people. You're not liberating them. You're oppressing them. Paul knew that climate and he writes this letter. And if you remember, the first 14 verses in the original language is just one long sentence in the original language. There's no periods, very little punctuation. Paul begins to write this letter and as he thinks about the gospel and as he thinks about God the Father who, who authored this gospel, he gets so excited that he, he, he shows us how the Trinity, the, the three parts of God, the three persons of God are involved in all of our salvation. That God, before the foundation of the world, he chose you that he knew that he was going to do something unique and beautiful in your life. He was going to forgive you of your sins, draw you out of your isolation, draw you out of your depression and your anxiety and, and take you out of that. He planned that. He pinned that for you before the foundation of the world. That's beautiful. Then as he progresses, he says, God planned it in the future and he knew at a specific time that he was going to infiltrate earth and God himself was born in human flesh. And he came as savior through a virgin. And he lived 33 years of perfect life. And in Ephesians chapter one, it tells us that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, those things give us through his blood redemption. He purchases us out of sin and out of darkness and out of our shame. He redeems us. And then as you saw last week, the the Holy Spirit seals us. God the Father authored it. Jesus made it possible and the Holy Spirit is guaranteeing your future. He's just, you ever listen to somebody who talks way too fast? I'm not talking about me, by the way. This is what happens with Paul in the letter, right? He's journaling, if you will, and we're getting a peek into it. He, he's writing, God has done this and Jesus has made it possible and the Spirit will seal you. And then in verse 15, he begins to pray. He starts to talk to God. He starts to communicate to God on behalf of the people in the church, the people in Ephesus, a group of people that he has heard about. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about the power of words. I didn't mention this in the first service, but this is uh, what came to me when I was thinking about this and preparing for the message that I had had a conversation with one of my kids and it was one of those conversations that required course correction. Have you ever done this with your kids? And as I was going through this conversation in course correction, trying to guide my child, my child looked at me at a certain point in the conversation and said, why are we talking about this? Are words really going to make a difference? I wanted more words at that moment. <laughs> wanted to share a few things. Maybe get a little physical. <laughs> and, and as I shared with him, I said, to my child, like words shape everything. Yes, talking about it matters. Having a conversation matters. And this is what Paul's having a conversation with God. And I want you to understand something because I'm hoping this morning and in two weeks when we revisit this, that your prayer life the way that you talk to God will be completely transformed because of what's in this text, because of what's in scripture, right? In James chapter three, which is probably one of the best dissertations on the tongue and speech that there is, James tells us some things that are really specific about our words and what we say and how we say them and when we say them. Right, are you familiar with it? You, you, you should be, because it's a tremendously powerful, helpful, pragmatic passage. He says, first of all, not many of you should become teachers. Here I am. 
The encouragement in the beginning of James 3 is many of you probably shouldn't be pastors. Many of you probably shouldn't be preachers because if you preach and if you share and you talk, especially about the things of God, you're going to be held accountable. And James says that you're going to incur a harsher judgment. And I've learned this. Over, I've, I've been preaching now for 20 years. And in 20 years, I still haven't figured it out. I'm still learning it. I'm still trying to figure it out. Everyone, and by the way, everybody, especially people with church backgrounds, they have an idea of how you should preach. Some think you should be more practical. Some think that you should be more pragmatic. Some think that, that you should be more expository. Some of you don't even know what that is. Some of you think that you should tell more stories because Jesus told stories. Everyone's got an opinion on how you should preach. I'm still trying to be faithful to God's word to the best of my ability. And I've learned that that passage in James 3 means I'm going to stand before God and God's going to say, you know, you said this about me and it was incorrect. And I'm thankful that when I go to heaven and I see God face to face for that harsher judgment, that before that judgment comes, I have already been, been, been covered by the blood of the lamb and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is mine. It's the only way I can keep getting up here, Right? And it says, okay, don't be, you're going to care, but the judgment also comes from people. People always have an opinion about the pastor. Good or bad. I hope it's good. <laughs> and as he goes on in that passage, though, he begins to say some things that are really profound. And he gives us these wonderful word pictures. He says, okay, when you think about speech, he says, I want you to think about a boat, a really large boat. Think of like the Titanic. Think of something even larger. And he says, you get these large boats and they go into a body of water and they're massive and they're huge. And this massive ship, he says, this massive boat is literally like steered by this small little rudder, this small piece of the boat. You have this massive thing and a small little thing and the small little thing literally drives the boat wherever the boat goes. He, he gives us another picture. He says, hey, you know what? As people, we've tamed all kinds of animals. And he gives us the picture of a horse. Does he get a horse and if you just take basically a little stick, what we call a bit, and you put that into a horse's mouth, you can steer that large beast wherever you want. You can make it speed up. You can make it s slow down. And, and James says, you know what? Actually, we've been able to tame all animals, except there's one small thing that we cannot tame, he says. Your mouth. He goes on and he says, literally, the tongue is this small part of your body but you have to think of your tongue a lot like that as a bit in a horse's mouth or the rudder on a ship. He says literally, literally what he says, paraphrasing to some degree, you can look it up on your own in James 3, but literally he says the whole course of life, the whole direction of your life can be predicated on your mouth. Literally, the argument that James is making, first of all, he's saying no one can tame it. No one can tame the tongue. He, he actually says in James 3, if you've tamed your words, you'll be perfect in everything else. Think of that for a moment, right? None of us are perfect. But if you're like, I want to strive for perfection, James's argument is if you want to be perfect, just tame your mouth. Because if you tame your mouth, everything else it is going to pale in comparison. Nothing will take as much effort. Nothing will be as hard. Nothing is harder than to tame the mouth. It's untamable. It's like that wild stallion out in the field. Don't touch it. Don't ride it. Don't look at it. This thing can set a whole forest on fire, it says, and dictate your whole life. James makes the argument that your words will literally be the thing you can look at and say, my marriage is well because of words. My relationships are well because of words. My walk with God is well because of words. My job is going well because of words. So when my child says, is it worth talking about? What do you think my answer as a father is? Absolutely, it's worth talking about. Uh, that's why God, in his sovereignty, has chosen the foolish things that confound the wise. It's why on Sunday mornings, God has seen fit in every church and every generation for the last 2,000 years to use the preaching of a pastor, the imperfect preaching of a pastor, to sanctify us in our faith and to bring people to salvation. I wouldn't have chosen to change the world this way. And yet this is how James describes... Your life's success is dependent on your words. 
And the reason I give you all of this is because when Paul starts to pray, he gives us a picture of prayer. He's telling us what it means to encounter God, what it means to speak to God. And if your words to other people can dictate your life, if the words you share with others are going to steer you in one way or another, imagine the importance of speaking to God. Are you with me? Does it not seem like it would be important to talk to God about anything? About everything? Are you utilizing prayer and speech to God to leverage your life and faith? Because if not, you're not utilizing one of the main tools that God has given for Christians to thrive. That is complete access to this Savior in prayer. And so Paul, as he's in prison, he, he prays. And what I want you to note is something that he doesn't mention. Remember I told you context matters? This church is being persecuted. The church is being marginalized. Like, if you're living in Ephesus, it's not any more popular to be a Christian then as it is today. Like, it's going to be difficult to be a Christian. And so Paul, Paul prays. But what doesn't he pray? Notice in this prayer, in their struggle, in their travail, Paul doesn't pray for a change in circumstances. Do you notice it? As Christians, we pray for circumstances quite often, I think. But I don't think it's nearly as important to pray for the change of our circumstances. It is a lot of what's in this prayer. Notice he doesn't pray for a new emperor. Has anyone been praying for a new emperor lately? He doesn't even pray for protection. He doesn't say, Lord, would you send some new fresh leadership? He doesn't say, Lord, would you, would you change the circumstances? Would you give a few more funds to the church? Would you, would you allow the, the culture to not be so oppressive towards us? He, he doesn't even pray for their economic situation. There's no prayer of politics here. No, 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 no. He prays for the, the only thing that matters. He prays that they would know the riches they have in Christ. He prays for understanding of what is already possessed. I didn't share it in the first service. Um, some of you know who Warren Wearsby is. You ever heard of that guy? I wish he tied to the church. That'd be cool. Warren Wearsby tells the story of a guy by the name of William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst, uh, he he read of this extremely valuable piece of art. And this very wealthy man said to himself, I have to own this very beautiful piece of art. And as he decided to add this to his extensive collection, he instructed his, his agent. He had a, this is how wealthy he is, right? He paid a guy to go find stuff. That's the mark of richness, I guess. You pay people to buy things. So he pays the guy to go buy stuff and he tells this agent, go scour all the galleries of the world and find this one masterpiece. I have to have it and I don't care what it's gonna cost. I need it, I want it, buy it for me, go look for it. And after months of searching, the agent rep reported back to Mr. Hurst. And you know what he told Mr. Hurst? We found it. We found this extensive expensive piece of artwork. We know exactly where it is. It was in one of your warehouses all along. You already owned it. Prayer is like that for a lot of Christians. A lot of what's in Ephesians is like that for a lot of Christians. God, change the circumstances. God, help me out. God, would you bless me? God, would you fix my circumstance? God, would you bring peace? There's petition after petition after petition. And Paul recognizes what's happening in the church isn't that they're anemic in anything other than their understanding of what it is they already have in Jesus. So Paul prays, right? He's thankful for the salvation of God in past, present, and future. And now he prays. He prays because it's how we're going to connect and be empowered to preach the gospel. And his prayer is that they would understand they would have illumination, which we'll cover more in a couple weeks, but more illumination to what it is they have in Jesus. And can you imagine how foolish it is for us to be praying some of the prayers that we pray when God all along is saying, friend, child, 
you have forgotten the wealth that you own. You have forgotten the resources that are yours. Don't you know as he teases on and he talks about the power of the resurrection and the power of Jesus and, and, and he begins to share these things that God has done, that that same power that resurrected Jesus, that that same ability to resurrect him from the dead exists in you? The church has lost its edge and its power. It's become anemic because it's forgotten the possessions that are clearly theirs that, that Jesus has purchased with his blood. I think that's important for us to know. But the first thing that flows out of him, the first thing that flows out of him in prayer, right? Talking to God matters. T- words matter. W- what do I say to God? Like, like if you're wondering what to pray, there's all kinds of places you can go to pray, to learn how to pray, right? To, to what I said earlier, though Paul doesn't pray for a change in, in, in leadership or a change in politics, there's a place to pray for those things. So don't Don't hear me that I'm saying don't pray for those things. There's a place to pray for that. Literally, there are passages that say pray for your government leaders. Pray for them. And usually that prayer shouldn't be one of of judgment and wrath, right? I pray, Lord, that you send a bunch of flies into the White House. Don't pray that. And what does he pray? Take a look. Look at the text. It's right there early on. This reason, he says, this is why I'm praying. The reason I'm praying, part of it is, is what's in the back. Part of it is because of all the things that God has done. But part of it is also because of what he has heard of them. He's in prison. He's in a jail cell. And he's heard of the Ephesians church. And as he's praying, he says this, I have heard of your faith and the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And I do not cease to give thanks for you. You see, the first thing that Paul prays for is Gratitude. That's the first thing he prays. If you want to change, utterly change your life tomorrow, the greatest impact that you can have in changing your life, your state of life, your state of mind, is to wake up in the morning and just simply start telling God what you're thankful for. I mean, literally, like honestly, if if you want a major change in your life, just start getting up in the morning and saying, God, thank you. Not God I need more of, not God I'm hoping for, not God I wish, God I I wanna get that new job. Lord, I hope California changes. God, I pray that I can move out of California. That'd be nice. But guess what happens when you move out of California? Other Californians follow you. That's what happens. Just ask all the people in Idaho. I'm talking to some people who live there for a while. They're like, dude, this is California 2.0. That's what happens when you pray for those kind of things. Circumstances change. But even in the worst of circumstances, death, cancer, depression, there's always something to be thankful for. There's always something to express to God. Even if it's just, God, thank you. Thank you that you have saved me. Thank you that I don't have to live on this frail planet forever. One of the number one evidences of God, in my opinion, the number one of the number one evidences that God is real is the fact that everybody across every culture, every nation, every tribe, every tongue has always said society needs to improve and get better. Because as C.S. Lewis says, if I long for something more than this world can give me, then I must have been designed for something more. I must have been designed for another world. And so we get up and we pray. I know it may seem painstakingly impossible, but there's a way to die with cancer, with gratitude. There's a way to lose a loved one with gratitude. There's a way to fight through your own sin with gratitude. And as Paul begins to pray, he says, I'm thankful, but I'm thankful of two things. I'm thankful for the people, but specifically the two things he's thankful for is, if you notice in the text, notice it. I'm thankful for their faith and I'm thankful for their love. These two things Paul couples together time and time again in scripture, faith and love, faith and love, faith and love. And what Paul is doing in this particular passage, starting out to the rest of his prayers, he's saying, Lord, the first thing I'm grateful for about the Ephesians church, I'm thankful, number one, that they're a church of faith. Now hear me closely on this because this is a big deal. You know faith is a big deal, don't you? I mean, out of the Reformation, we got faith alone in Christ alone. It's kind of a big deal. 
Faith is kind of a big deal. And here's why it's really, really a big deal. Because faith is the primary thing that makes you a Christian. If you're here this morning and you go, okay, I want to know what makes me Christian. It's right here. These are the two tests of Christianity. Number one, do you have faith? Faith is always primary. Faith, I'm going to say it, and some of you are going to go, huh? Faith is way more important than what you do and how you live. Faith is primary. Practice is necessary. Faith is the thing that matters the most, and that faith makes a Christian love. Those are the two marks of Christianity. Faith and then love. And the reason this is so important is because have you ever heard people say things like, they'll never become a Christian? They're not the Christian type. You ever heard that? What is the Christian type? Because if there's anything I know, I'm not it. If you say, if you say that person will never become a Christian, they're not the Christian type, you don't understand the gospel. There's no such thing as a Christian type. Like who really is practicing, even in perfect faith, who in the room practices perfect faith? Nobody raise your hand, please. We don't, we don't need any heretics here. None of us are perfect in our faith. In fact, uh, uh, as Christians, man, we, we really, we've really gotten off on this. Some of us think our practice is far more important than our, than our faith. Some of us think that if you're really saved, you're going to act a certain way. Have you ever heard someone say this? There is no way they're a Christian because a Christian would never do that. Could you please read your Bible? Is that true of Peter? Was that true? Peter denied Jesus. What about David? What about King David? This guy's called a man after God's own heart. I don't know if you've read much of the life story of David, but David killed a husband because he got his wife pregnant while the husband was fighting at war. What? Whatever I said, you know what I mean. Right, so he, he, he lays with this gal. She's married. The dude's name is Uriah. Uriah's out on the war, out in war. And so he calls Uriah back. He says, come back, I got a treat for you. You get to lay with your wife. He tried to cover it up. Think of how screwed up this is. He walks out onto the deck. Oh, I need her. Come on down. He does what he does. He realizes she's pregnant. Uh-oh, got to fix it. Where's her husband? He's at war. Bring him home. Okay, you're home. Now go lay with her. What does Uriah do? He knows all the rest of his crew are out fighting. All the rest of his warriors are fighting. So he lays down at the door. He doesn't go in and lay with his wife. And so David realizes that his trick isn't going to work. And so what does he do? He does what a lot of us do with our own sin. Instead of repenting, he keeps adding on to it. And he says to Uriah, well, okay, I'm going to send you back to war. And he puts Uriah on the very front line so that Uriah will undoubtedly be murdered and killed. And then he is, he's killed. And then David ends up with Bathsheba and has a son with Bathsheba. The story continues from there. It doesn't get any better. I don't know about you, but I'm not holding up David in front of you and going, this is what it means to be a loving Christian. Who holds up David and says, this is what it is to be a Christian? Who holds up denying Peter and says, this is what it is to be a Christian? Because our salvation is not about what we do. It's true that if you're a Christian, you could still be wrestling with sin. You could still be wrestling with issues. You can still be wrestling with your own faith because it isn't what you do that saves you. It's what he has done that saves you. It's Jesus's life, Jesus's action, Jesus's works, Jesus's death, Jesus's resurrection. None of you have done any of that. He has done it for you. He has accessed it for you because you cannot do it. And just because you place your faith in this Jesus doesn't mean all of a sudden your life gets cleaned up. You know that, don't you? And I experienced this firsthand. Some of you, you're all familiar with my story. My parents began to come to church, right? And my parents were rough around the edges. 
I was about 12 years old, start coming to church here with my parents. You know, my father was building Harleys from the ground up, wearing leathers. My mom wore leathers too, because she thought it was cool to do. It was a cool thing to do, right, Ma? She's in the room this morning, so she, she loves it when I share these stories. <laughs> right? They were tough. And all of a sudden, they, my mom puts her faith in Christ. Later, my father puts his faith in Christ. We start coming to see her Bible church. I'm going to public school. We're all brand new Christians walking in thinking, Jesus loves the little people, right? We're, God's awesome. This is great. We're in church. We're forgiven. And then all of a sudden, we get in a room with a bunch of people who've been Christians for year after year after year, and all their kids are homeschooled, and they're looking at us kind of like, we heard about people like this getting saved. <laughs> Seriously, that's a problem. It's a problem when the church is standing back and going, I can't believe someone like that got saved. Because you don't understand the gospel if that's the case. And, and as I was growing up and feeling that judgment from parents, my mom will tell you, there were parents who were constantly telling my mom and dad, our kids can't hang out with your kid. Because one day he's going to be their pastor. <laughs> <clears throat> God has a sense of humor. <laughs> you see what had happened when we first came to church, at least from my perspective, I think my parents may have been a little different, but at least for me, you're not a Christian because your behavior is not right. Faith is primary. What you believe is way more important than how you live. And I know that that's hard for some of you to hear, but that is what sets Christianity apart. If you go to any other culture that teaches any other religion, even in our own culture, our own culture is basically like, hey, listen, you have to practice the religion of today because if you don't practice the cultural religion of the day, we're gonna cancel you. Right? My wife and I, we just took a tremendously fun trip to the cancel culture capital of the world. Disneyland, Los Angeles. My kids had a blast. But you know, as a Christian, I walk in and I can't help but see the constant preaching and the constant mantra that the culture's teaching our kids. Right? You have to, right? What culture says is the opposite of what I just said. I just said, hear me clearly. Hopefully I can make myself clear. What you believe matters than, more, than, than how you live. Culture says, it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you live woke. It doesn't matter what you believe. As long as your life actions are filled with social justice, justice and the woke culture and the woke agenda that exists within our nation. That's what it teaches. That's not the gospel. That's an anti-gospel. Whether you recognize it or not, the culture's teaching you an anti-gospel, which is you must do this and then you shall be saved and you shall have community and you shall be happy. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And if you do, and if you believe in his death and his resurrection, his righteousness imputed to you out of faith and your sin imputed to him in faith, if you believe that, that matters way more than what you do. However, Paul says, faith is primary. I'm thankful for the church's faith. And this is one of the first things we should be praying gratitude for. God, I pray for faith that surpasses any faith that we could ever think or imagine. But then he says, I've heard of the faith. Faith is primary, but I also have heard of your love for all the saints. Faith is primary, but practice is necessary. Practice doesn't save you. But if you've really encountered the risen Christ, if you've encountered forgiveness of your sins, if you've encountered a love that knows no bounds, that cares for you no matter what you've done, no matter the evil thoughts that you have thought, or the images that you have looked at online, no matter what those things are, when you've received that and you've got that forgiveness, then you will follow out, you'll flow out of you will be love. And love for who? Everybody. All of the saints. 
right? In this prayer, we recognize that God is gracious to others. And we say, thank you, God, for your grace upon believers, Lord. Thank you. And Lord, thank you for the love that flows out of that. And here's how you know you're a Christian. You believe in Jesus. Some of you go, oh, I know my faith isn't that strong. Let's be clear. Weak faith in a strong object object is always better than strong faith in a weak object. You with me? It's the object of your faith. And some of you are like, I don't have strong faith. Hey, welcome to the club. We're all wrestling this out. But we focus on the object of that faith, and that is Jesus. And then once we focus on that faith, we begin to see and we begin to be thankful for all of the grace that God gives to others. And we say, thank you, Lord, for that grace. Thank you for showing grace. Thank you for showing forgiveness. Thank you for giving love. And we pray for these things. As we get ready to close, and I have James come up here in just a few moments, that's the encouragement out of the pastors this morning. Your words absolutely matter. And what you say to God absolutely will dictate your life of faith. And if you're going to follow in the footsteps of Paul, you will say to the Lord, you will pray to the Lord, you will say thank you to the Lord that it is faith that saves you, not your good works. But because of that faith, good works should follow. That should be the evidence that flows out. Right? That, 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 that's how you know you're a Christian because you begin, you begin to love people who are different than you. I said this in the first service. I'll say it briefly here. You know, our culture is, be, is completely confused about gender and all that now, yeah? I think I read a statistic earlier that uh, transition surgeries are up 15,000% like in the last five years. What is that going to look like for us as pastors, ministers, and Christians in 10, 15, 20 years? When these young kids get to be 30 years old and they know and they feel that they've thrown their life away, that that brutalization of a surgery, which is what it is, did not bring them happiness or contentment. What happens when they walk in that room as a self-proclaimed whatever and they sit down next to you? Are you equipped to tell them it's more about what you believe than what you do? Because it's my hope that the church will be a bomb, a healing bomb for these individuals who've made those decisions because it's coming. I don't know when, but it is going to come. Hear me clearly. There is a day that is coming where this slew of individuals who are struggling with their identity are gonna hear that there is only one place where they can find out who they really are. And that's in the church. Because Jesus said it this way, there's neither Jew, there's neither Greek, there's neither male, there's neither female, there's just one in Christ. And it is possible for someone to go through that kind of sin and still find forgiveness and still find grace. And as I preach this message, it's my prayer that not only will we pray for these things, but that we'll be a church that when those individuals come, we will know how to handle it correctly. Not with overjudgment, not with I'm better than you, not with you better clean up your life first before you come to Jesus. You better go through another surgery before you come to faith. No, 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 come as you are because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. And make a proclamation for Jesus today. And if that's you this morning, today is the day to put your identity completely in Christ's identity. Don't have any other identity the culture's trying to give you. Disney's trying to tell you how to be. ESPN's trying to tell you how to be. Oh, by the way, they're owned by Disney. Fox is trying to tell you how to be. Oh, by the way, for you Fox fans, also owned by Disney. Did you know that? You got a lot of Republicans going, Fox News, owned by Disney. There's nowhere you can run from our liberating society except in the church where you can finally truly be who God's made you to be, amen? This is the place to find out who you really are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that it doesn't return void and that you wanna continue to do a good work in us. Help us to have this heart of gratitude and prayer like Paul did. Help us to do well in that. But even if we don't, may we know we're saved by faith and not our works. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, real quick, I'm gonna close out with James 
James Grout, James, come on up. This is James. Uh, I told James that I, yeah, you can give him a hand. <laughs> they don't even know you. They're just practicing grace. Uh, I told him earlier, um, here's that for you. I told him earlier I would appreciate it if he sat on a stool while I, while I stood, but uh, Amy didn't put a stool up here, so it's her fault. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, inside joke in my brain there. So James is part of One Child. When you were coming on up, One Child is also affiliated with the Christian Missionary Alliance. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we're part of the Alliance, which is just a a bunch of churches, a lot of different expressions of that, philosophies of ministry and whatnot. Um, But the CMA is, the Alliance is is really behind mission planting, going out in missions, and planting churches. That's kind of the big movement of it. And so I appreciate the movement because it allows us to really leverage funds in a way that we normally couldn't do if we were by ourselves. And part of, out of the CMA, and part of the CMA is one child, which is kind of, think of like compassion, but a little bit better because we have better relationship uh, with one child through the CMA, a better accountability and all of that. And so James is going to share with us a little bit Uh, about One Child. So James, tell them about who you are a little bit and then what you do for One Child. Yeah, thank you. What a privilege to be here with you. You are my people. Did I turn that on? Um, I did, yeah. Is it on? Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You are my people. You don't know that. You didn't know that before just now, but uh, I grew up in a Christian and Missionary Alliance church. My father was a pastor of an Alliance church, so I was a pastor's kid. And then I became a pastor myself. I was a youth pastor at an Alliance church out in Wheaton, Illinois for 20 years. And, uh, and now I work with a lot of Alliance churches, and so you are, I'm, I'm ordained, I'm licensed through the Alliance, that's so uh, people, you can call me reverend if you want to, no one does, but you can totally call me that if you want to. Um, so you're my tribe, you're my people, and I'm, I'm really p- pleased to be here with you, and I'm happy to be here also because I get to tell you about One Child. Uh, one Child is an organization we call ourselves a global community of child champions, And a child champion is anybody who gives of themselves so that a child has a chance to thrive. And where we work in the world is with the poorest of the poor. Uh, Our tagline is hope in hard places, and I've been to these places, and they're hard places. They're very difficult places for a child to live, for a child to grow, for a child to be safe, for a child to get an education. It's difficult for children to live in extreme poverty. And, uh, And if someone doesn't advocate for them, then they will probably stay stuck in this generational cycle of poverty that they've found themselves in. You, you, some of you might know this, but generational sins and generational brokenness is really, really hard to break out of. And if you don't have someone to advocate for you, someone to come alongside you, someone to walk you through that possibility, uh, it's, re- it's really difficult to do on your own. We say it this way. Hope is a vision of a preferred future, a way to get there, and the courage to try. Well, hope is amazing, and when a child living in poverty is told you have hope because God loves you, because he has a plan for your life, you're, you're more than what you've been told you are, they begin to believe that. But that journey towards that better future, that thing they could see themselves becoming, that tomorrow's a better day, maybe I don't have to live in this community forever, maybe I can break out of this cycle, that journey's a, a really difficult journey. It takes a long time. It's not easy. And if it was easy, everybody would just do it. And, th- and so they have to do that journey. And that journey happens in what we call hope centers, where they get help with uh, education. They get help with nutrition. They get help with medical needs that they have. They get help with a socialization, just a place for a child to be a child. All of that happens in our hope centers, where they also get to hear about the gospel. But it's a journey but it's a difficult journey, and they need the courage to stay on the path because no one, uh, maybe nobody in their community is going to be encouraging them on that path, maybe not even their own parents. Their parents might be trying to get them to go beg in the streets or go work in the garbage dump picking so they can help support this family. This is a chance for that child to actually journey this path with people, child champions, who will give them the courage to do it and say, you can do it, we can help you, we're here to tutor you. Uh, That's what happens in our Hope Centers around the world. So that's just a little picture of who we are. And when I say child champions, I think about our people who work and volunteer with children around the world, but I also think about people right here in this room. This room is full, I guarantee, this room is full of child champions. Those of you who give of yourselves so that a child can thrive. Maybe it's your own child, maybe you're an uncle, tutor, coach, mentor, whatever it is, 
you know what it means to champion a child, and maybe you know what it means to be championed when you were a child or as a child right now. Uh, you need people in your life who actually believe in you and invest in you. So you also can be a champion for one of these children around the world by sponsoring a child. That was a long, long answer to your question. Uh, so sponsorship is $39 a month, and everything that I just described comes through that $39 a month. Um, and I can show you a little bit of, of what that looks like. This is uh, Scarlett is her name. She's six years old. She lives in the Dominican Republic. All the children that we brought with us, the child profiles we brought with us today, are children living in the Dominican Republic. And as we were talking about earlier, they're connected to Alliance churches there as well. So you're actually going to be working with children who are connected to a church that's similar to yours, a, a also a part of your global tribe. And so she's a part of this Hope Center. She's six years old. She was born on September 22nd. Tells us inside a little bit about herself. And I'll just tell you right now, I don't know Scarlett. I, I haven't met her. I've been to this, this location. I don't think I've ever met this little girl. But she's, she's up against it. She has a single mom who has two other children, so a single mom with three children, and she's unemployed. And I've been in that community, and uh, when you're unemployed in that community, there aren't many options for you. So this little girl and her mom, uh, they have some struggles. And so being a part of a program like ours is very, very important to someone like her. So that's a big part of uh, why we do what we do is for little children just like Scarlett. So one of the things, too, that I just want to reiterate, one, if you sponsor a child, a couple things that are pretty neat. One is the child that you are sponsoring is connected with a local body. I just want to re reiterate that. And so they're connected to a church. They're connected with discipleship. And then in addition to that, one of the really neat things, if you sponsor a child through, through this, is that at some point, whether coordinated through our church or coordinated through Envision, which is what will help do it, uh, we can get you out there. You can actually visit the Dominican Republic. You can visit these churches. You can visit your own child that you've sponsored, and you can really see how that plays out and how it's impacted. Uh, if you want more of that information down the road, James can help you. I can help you. So if you sponsor a child now and in like two years you want to go visit and you need the right connections, we can get you connected. Uh, and so if you want to sponsor a child, they're all out on the deck. Uh, you can hang out, ask James questions. Anything else in particular you want? Well, if, if anybody's watching online and, um, and you want to know how to do that, the best way to do it, we actually have cards with QR codes that you could go to a website that has more children from the same communities, but also um, your church website. There's a, there's a link right on the, on the homepage from your church website. Just go there, and uh, that's probably the quickest way to be able to sponsor if you're not here in person and want to do this as well. Yeah, great. So, Let me pray for you. Okay, thanks. Lord, I just want to lift up James and uh, the organization of One Child. We pray, Lord, that they would reach many children. Uh, Lord, I pray that right now we just trust your spirit to move. There's no manipulation. There's no begging here. You're uh, the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. You don't even need our funds. This is an invitation for us to participate along you, uh, alongside you. And I pray that your spirit would minister to those who are being called right now to sponsor a child, that they would be obedient to that and that they would go for it, Lord, and that they wouldn't look back and they'd be thankful for that experience. So continue to use James as he continues to reach these kids for you, uh, Lord, and we ask that you continue to do a great work in and through them. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. God bless you. Let's sing a song. We'll see you outside. Would you guys stand with us?